You're listening to a podcast of This Positive Life, thebody.com's growing collection of first-person stories from people living with HIV. This is Bonnie Goldman, Editorial Director of The Body. Welcome to This Positive Life. I'm here today with Kali Lindsay. Today, I'll be talking to Kali about living with HIV. He was diagnosed in 2003, and he currently lives in Washington, D.C., where he works as a program manager for the National Association of People with AIDS. Kali, welcome to This Positive Life. Thank you. Um, Can you tell our readers and listeners about your personal history with HIV? How did you find out you were HIV positive? I actually found out that I was HIV positive because I made a a random uh, visit to the emergency room after I noticed a rash develop on my torso. And I came to find out later that that rash was shingles. And as a result of me finding out that I had shingles, the doctor connected the fact that I was young. And shingles is uh, typically a symptom that happens to persons that are immunocompromised. He decided to offer me a test for HIV. And after my consent, he gave me my positive diagnosis. How old were you then? I was 23 at the time. Uh-huh. So how long had you? do you think you were infected? At least, the last time I remember getting tested prior to that was in um, 1999. So there was at least about three or four years between my last test and that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And do do you know from whom you got HIV? I do not know. And did you realize that you had been doing things that would put you at risk for HIV? Well, not really. Um, From my understanding, you know, through my exposure with uh, HIV prevention awareness, I was of the understanding that HIV was only a concern to promiscuous gay men and prostitutes and injection drug users. So because I was the kind of gay man who really only got intimate with uh, people that I was developing strong kinships with, and I wasn't really sexually active. I had less than um, six sexual partners a year, and I probably only had sexual encounters maybe once a month. I didn't really think that I was at high risk for it because I wasn't connecting the fact that it was just unprotected sex that was a risk. I was connecting the frequency of the sexual activity. And so now you've done prevention work since then, haven't you? I have. So do you find that that's very common, that notion about how safe you can be and what you do? And I mean, was it very common um, that other people feel the same way? Well, you know, I think that a lot of that has changed more recently. I think around the the late 90s, you know, there was still a lot of fear campaigns and a lot of fear tactics used to encourage people to uh, and engage in safer sex practices and to engage in uh, prevention campaigns. So a lot of people's view of AIDS was, you know, this very wasted appearance with uh, lesions and everybody really thought that you could really actually tell if someone had HIV or at least some way be able to uh, know prior to that you're putting yourself at risk. And I was, number one, I was young, so I really didn't think anything was going to happen to me. And secondly, I thought that if that ever did happen, then I would know and be able to make an informed decision prior to uh, being susceptible to HIV. But knowing what we know now, we know that you can't tell uh, if anyone has HIV and you just have to protect yourself regardless. How long did it take you to process your diagnosis? I would probably say that it took me about six months before I was really able to really deal with the fact that I had been given a positive diagnosis. I I spent about the day after I got my positive diagnosis, I was back at work, you know, pretending like nothing had ever happened. 
So I actually was started on medication immediately after finding my diagnosis because I found out later. I found out late after I had been infected. I was really dealing with the side effects of the medication and really coming to accept the fact that I had been given a positive diagnosis, but I wasn't at the point where I was ready to talk to people about it, and I kind of kept it to myself for about six months and closed off from everybody. And what helped you finally get the strength to deal with it? I got fed up with being alone. I got fed up with uh, just spending countless hours in my apartment, you know, just contemplating and just trying to make sense of it all on my own. And I, I wanted to reach out to someone that would help me think through this new aspect of my life and, and, and kind of help me get past it. And where did you find this help? Um, actually, the Internet. Um, I went online, and one of the things that I did was I just looked through all of the profiles for someone that's actually disclosed that they had HIV in their profile, and I wanted to, you know, just engage them in a conversation about how they dealt with it and, you know, about how I was feeling and, you know, if they were open to, you know, talking to me about HIV and how we dealt with it. And so do you find somebody who was up to the task? Ironically, I did. Um, I found somebody, and the first person that I reached out with was actually, even though our identities weren't revealed online, uh, I later came to find out that it was someone that I went to undergraduate school with. Uh-huh. Um, though we had um, never been intimately involved or anything, uh, it was someone that I had hung around with and knew quite well, which made it even more comfortable for me to um relate to him about what I was experiencing because we already had a prior relationship. Mm-hmm. What site was this, may I ask? Um, it was gay.com. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. So who did you first tell in your surrounding circle? He was the first person that I told. Uh-huh. By that time, you had met him. Do you we knew who he was? We talked online for a while before we actually exchanged identities. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time we exchanged identities, yeah, we realized that we already knew who each other were, so that made the in-person meeting much more comforting. And when did you first tell your parents or family? Actually, I didn't tell anybody in my family or any of my friends until the summer of 2006, right before I moved to uh, D.C., I told my mother and my father that I had been dealing with this thing since 2003. And I just really felt like in the beginning, I didn't want them to know because I felt like it would have been a burden to them and they would have spent all of their time just being concerned and worried about me. So I felt it was kind of selfish for me to uh, burden them with something that was my cross to bear. So instead, I kind of kept it to myself. So they wouldn't be worried about me. But in the end, I felt that it was just better for them to know in the event that something happened to me when I moved to D.C. or something that they wouldn't be blindsided with the information. And and how did they respond? Uh, my mother was really concerned. At the time, she really um, hadn't paid any attention to uh, HIV. You know, for me, I was the first person that I knew that had HIV. You know, I've never in my lifetime known anybody that's died from HIV. You know, and my view of HIV had been, you know, Pedro's more on on Real World or um, other documentaries or things that I had seen on television. So when I found out that I had HIV, I really had to learn everything about HIV for myself because, you know, I really didn't have that friend or family member that I could really relate to. 
And when I told my mom, she had the same similar reaction because, of course, we haven't had any family members that have dealt with HIV, so she had the same questions. She thought it was still a death sentence like it was in the early 80s or in the early 90s prior to her coming on the scene. So she uh, asked me what it meant, what was I going to die, how I was dealing with it. And uh, after I explained a lot of the things about uh, heart and um, how healthy I was still able to be and the positive outcomes that could happen if I remained adherent, she um, calmed down quite a bit. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a brother and a sister. Uh, and how did they respond? My brother and I have always had a very estranged relationship. He's significantly older than me. He's about 13 years older than me. So since we haven't been close, he didn't really react too viscerally to it. It kind of just went over his head. Um, my sister was a little bit more affected by it. She was kind of sad and she... We're um, one year apart. We've grown up together, and uh, we kind of affectionately call each other twins because we're so close. So it, it significantly hurt her that someone so close to her was struggling with this type of health challenge. But in the end, she just wanted to be there for me and wanted to make sure that whatever else that I went through regarding HIV or any other aspect of my life, that I didn't hold it back from her, and I came to her so that she could help me through it. So the three years that you hadn't disclosed to anyone, what were they like? They were heart-wrenching, and they were extremely, they were psychotic for me. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in my head. I spent a lot of time trying to figure everything out from how I was going to be able to navigate life without people finding out that I had HIV, how I was going to access services, how I was going to keep all of my health records out of people's reach so nobody figured it out whether or not anybody was ever going to love me again because now I had this additional burden to deal with and it's already hard um, dating being a gay man, not to mention being a gay black man and um, having such a small community to date within. But in addition to that, now I had this additional burden of having to tell everybody that I was HIV positive and then having them look at me as this vector of disease that was waiting to decrease their uh, chance of possibilities and happiness. So a lot of time was was spent just trying to figure that all out and how I could possibly return to some quality of life or regain some type of happiness in my life in spite of having HIV. And you were still living in Detroit at that point, in Michigan? That's right. Mm-hmm. And what was your job at that point? At the point when I was diagnosed, I was working in the retail industry. I was, I was in a management career, but I switched. I started volunteering at a local nonprofit called AIDS Partnership Michigan probably about a year after I was diagnosed. And then uh, about probably about six months after I started volunteering, they offered me a job, and I started working in HIV prevention full-time. And I was working there until the time that I moved to D.C. And what did you find rewarding about being in HIV? I found rewarding that I didn't necessarily have to feel alone anymore. I, I got to meet other people that were uh, living with HIV. And I, the, the wealth of knowledge that I learned during the time that I was in that field was extremely, extremely beneficial because I just learned all kinds of things about my body. I learned about my medications. I learned about um, the social and the structural factors that affect people with HIV. I learned that some of the new things that were coming down the pipe that weren't necessarily mainstream or available to the public yet. I learned about vaccines, you know, the, the constant struggle to try to produce a vaccine that will eradicate the 
the possibility of people, or at least reduce the possibility of people getting HIV and some of the new medications. I just, so much wealth of information, not to mention the fact that I was able to finally talk about it with people. Um, being in the HIV AIDS field, you know, people weren't scared to really talk to me or to touch me or, you know, to hug me or to touch my hand because they they knew that, you know, HIV wasn't transmittable that way. Did you find other people in your world who were afraid to touch you? Yeah. Uh, one of my horror stories was when I first went to my first infectious disease appointment after finding out that I had HIV, you know, the nurse put on double gloves and, you know, she was very clinical when she talked to me. And when we talked about HIV, she asked me, you know, how I got in. I told her I got it through unprotected sex. And she asked me if I was surprised by the result. And when I told her that I was surprised by the result, she kind of reacted like, you're kidding. You you had to know that you were, were going to get HIV. You're a gay man. So she kind of made it sound like it was typical that I had HIV because I was this gay man. So it was going to happen me, to me anyway. So she wasn't very compassionate. Not at all. <laughs> wow. Not at all. She didn't work for, was this an infectious disease specialist? Was this it was an infectious disease nurse in um, one of the most reputable hospitals in Michigan. Wow. Yeah, so uh, I was really disturbed by the fact that she kind of treated me as, you know, you deserved it because you're a gay man, so. Well, at that point, you didn't complain, but at this point, would you complain? Actually, at that point, I, because I had private insurance, I took the liberty of switching my infectious disease uh-huh. doctor, and I didn't go back to that clinic, but I didn't lodge any formal complaint or anything like that. But Looking back in retrospect, I probably would have said something to the infectious disease doctor, at least to someone, so that, you know, people that came after me would not have had to deal with that same type of treatment. Yes, unbelievable. So when you started seeing a physician, how soon was it? You said, was it in in the six months that you were dealing with it or, or after that you went to get your first CD4 count and viral load? Actually, when I was diagnosed... I was actually hospitalized as a result of the shingles kind of spread into my spinal cord and uh, manifested itself into viral meningitis, so I spent a week in the hospital. And once I was released, I came back in a week and got my results from the doctor that was treating me while I was in the hospital. And a week after that, I was in the doctor's office for my first infectious disease appointment. And what was your baseline? What was the first CD4 count that you had in the first viral load? 214. 214. Mm-hmm. And the viral load, do you remember? It was, I believe, 180,000. So I guess they recommended treatment. Yeah, because I was so close to the 200 mark and being immunocompromised, they definitely recommended that I go on Bactrim, of course, right away to get my CD4 cell count back up and go on antiretrovirals immediately. Mm-hmm. So what was your first regimen? The unfortunate regimen of Sestiva and Combivir. Uh-huh. Unfortunate because... Because it had tremendous night sweats. Every time I went, to, I took it right before I went to bed, and immediately after falling asleep, my entire bed was wet. And what else and, happened? <laughs> and I had these crazy dreams. I, I saw myself like running through all of these really very vivid environments, uh, running from things that were trying to uh, kill me, running from things that were chasing after me. And it was just all of these crazy dreams that I would have that would wake me up in the middle of the night. And I would remember waking up from these dreams and still feeling like I was in the dream, even though I was, you know, in my bedroom. But I would still feel like I was in the process of running away from these things that were trying to get me until I eventually shook out of the dream. Wow. So how long did you stay on that? 
I stayed on it for probably about three weeks. One of the things that eventually made me tell my doctor to switch me off of it was the fact that I was at work and it, it left me with such a stupor throughout the day that I actually kind of felt like I was numb while I was at work. And it was hard for me to keep my equilibrium because I kind of felt like I was waving back and forth and I was going to fall over at any point. I was kind of dizzy and nauseous. So as a result of that, I just really felt like it was hard for me to concentrate on my work. So I asked them to switch me to something that was a little bit more tolerable. And what was your next regimen? It was Kaletra and still Combivir. How did that work out? That was still <laughs> very hard to tolerate because Kaletra has some extreme gastrointestinal effects. So it kept me in the bathroom quite frequently. And having to run to the bathroom frequently was also hard to manage with a work environment and um, having to be available to customers on a regular basis. So, again, I, I, <laughs> I needed something that was a little bit more tolerable for my work environment. So how long did you stay on that regimen? I stayed on that one I, I, for a little bit longer. I think I stayed on that one for about a month to six weeks. And then what happened? <laughs> and then I switched again to a combination of Epivir, uh, Viremune, and Viriad. And for the first time, I was on a treatment that I had little to no side effects from. You know, there was, he gave me some compensating because there was some initial nausea that I was experiencing. But other than that, I, it was pretty well tolerated. So I was actually able to take that one without any events. And is that what you're still on now, or have you changed? No, um, I actually, about a year and a half ago, went through a little depression moment, and I stopped taking my medications and just didn't want to deal with having HIV anymore. So when I eventually went back to the doctor and told him that I hadn't been on my medications for a while, he uh, checked my blood work, and, and he switched my medication because he said I had probably developed some immunity to it. So you, you had drug resistance? I did. To the viremune, I bet. Correct. Yep. Right, right. So he switched me again. He switched me to Trivada and um, Epsicom. Uh-huh. And so you were on Epivir, Viremune, and Viriad for how long? Do you remember? From 2003 to 2000, so three years, yeah. To 2006? Uh-huh. Oh, okay, great. And you're doing okay? Do you have any noticeable side effects for Trivada and Epsicom? Every once in a while I get a little nausea and I lose my appetite, but for the most part I really don't have any side effects from it. Um, how did you find your current doctor? I actually looked him up online when I moved to D.C. Um, D.C. fortunately boasts a wealth of infectious disease doctors, mostly because one in 20 people in D.C. is infected with HIV. So there's no shortage of infectious disease doctors in the area. Um, but I also was in the DuPont Circle area, which was very comforting to me because not only are they um, knowledgeable infectious disease doctors, but they're also knowledgeable about dealing with uh, patients who identify as GLBT or gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. Which so, place is this? It's called DuPont Physicians Group. Uh-huh. So they're very gay-friendly. Yeah, it's right in DuPont Circle, which is, of course, a, a very um, gay-identified neighborhood in, in the District of Columbia. So not only was I able to talk to him about HIV, but I was also able to talk to him about other concerns that I have health-wise with being a gay man. And they're, they're very open and... Yeah, he's willing to talk to me about anything. That's great. So do you think your doctor treats you like a partner in terms of making decisions? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things that he chastised me about was the fact that I decided to go off of my regimen and not talk to him about it. 
he definitely wanted me to uh, come to him and, you know, have a conversation with me about it so that he could have been with me during that decision process instead of me just going independently on it. And he said if that was something that I wanted to do, then he could have coached me through it as opposed to getting to the point where he had to switch my medications. Mm -hmm. So uh, he definitely encourages me to be very, you know, conversational with him so that we can make decisions together. Mm-hmm. And do you have a particular health regimen that helps you stay well? Like, do you take vitamins? Do you exercise a lot? Do you juice? I don't know. Actually, I don't. I'm actually bad in that department because you know my doctor has been telling me for years and years that I need to start working out or, um, you know, start doing things that, to help improve my health outcomes. But fortunately and unfortunately, I've been blessed with a, a high metabolism. And because I don't gain weight, I, I, I haven't motivated myself to work out because I don't see the pudge coming on or anything like that, which, you know, normally motivates most people to get into the gym. Mm-hmm. But I've been um, investigating additional options for uh, working out that are less repetitive, like doing yoga or swimming or just playing volleyball on a regular basis. You know, something that isn't necessarily working out, but it's still getting my heart rate up and giving me a chance to get some energy expended. I wanted to go back and talk about a little bit about the work you do. Um, living with HIV, don't you get sick of talking and thinking about HIV? I, oh, I, God, yes. <laughs> in the beginning, I'm, it was very healing, and it really <laughs> was an educational experience. But uh, do you sometimes yearn to be in a, I don't know, in a different field? Absolutely. I'm, every day of my life, I, I I wake up and I'm like, I'm I live HIV 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I get really sick of talking about HIV and AIDS a lot of times. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I can't escape it, especially when people know that I work for the National Association of People with AIDS. I kind of become this person that always has to talk about HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do just want to run away from it and isolate myself from it. But I also appreciate the fact that so many people in their work relationships because of stigma and discrimination can't be out at work or can't be out in their family environments or can't be out in their home environments. So I appreciate the fact that I am able to be out for them when they can't and advocate on their behalf when they don't feel empowered to do so. And I guess I want to go back to relationships. How have your relationships with your family and friends changed since you were diagnosed now that they've assimilated your diagnosis? Has it changed in any way that you noticed? Yeah, uh, my, my my relationships with my family hasn't changed because I've always had a very supportive and close-knit family, and that hasn't changed at all. A lot of my uh, relationships with my friends did, however. A lot of my friends that had, you know, prejudgments about people with HIV, for instance, a lot of my friends, you know, felt that HIV would only happen to people that were irresponsible or people that, you know, didn't take care of themselves. And a lot of my friends also had this very bad habit of calling people with HIV sick or, you know, talking disrespectfully about people with HIV. And I kind of uh, have pulled away from having those people in my life. And I've really adopted new friendships with people that have a more welcoming and appreciative concept of people with HIV and and are contributory to a more positive and healing health outcome for me as opposed to, you know, weighting me down with negative Mm -hmm. judgments. What's the best response you have ever gotten from telling someone you're positive? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, one of the things that uh, fortunately I've been exposed to as a result of my current occupation is, you know, just going out and 
openly disclosing to a, a, an audience of people, and people will come up to me and actually thank me for telling people that I was HIV positive because they found that it empowered them to hear somebody else say it, even though that they couldn't. And it, it felt good for them to be able to see someone express their HIV positivity in a level, in a, in a spirit of not being ashamed about it and in a spirit of helping other people to deal with the reality that there are HIV positive people amongst everybody that look and sound and act like everybody else. And they felt the need to have that expressed, but they knew they couldn't express it themselves. What's the worst response you ever got? The worst response was, are, are you going to die? Oh. <laughs> and what did you say? <laughs> well, after I regained my uh, composure and my <laughs> my first reaction was, you know, just dumbfounded. I kind of just looked stunned, like, are you kidding? Like, do I look like I'm going to die? But, um, you know, I... I Unfortunately, due to my occupation, I, I, I immediately launched into this education type of mode. So I immediately wanted to tell them about HIV and the reality that the medications really don't contribute to a death sentence anymore. People are living long, productive lives and are able to manage a quality of life if they get diagnosed and get on treatments and uh stay adherence to their medications and have regular visits with their doctor. But also, I really got turned off by the person because I'm like, if if you're not even ready to deal with the fact that HIV is a reality and that you need to be more sensitive to people with HIV, then I'm not quite sure that this conversation needs to go any further. You know, I guess related to that is do you come across people who believe in a lot of the myths about HIV, that HIV doesn't cause AIDS or that it's, it's, a, it's a conspiracy from the government or, I don't know, there's a lot of myths. Absolutely. <laughs> what and what do you? Who do you come across who say? You know, is it like just a lot of different people? And what do they say? And how do you respond? Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of people, especially minorities, who are still very distrustful of health departments and Western medicine and um, healthcare organizations because of you know things like the Tuskegee experiment and all kinds of mistreatment that has happened in the past. In fact, I was on a radio interview this morning for National HIV Testing Day where um, an African-American gentleman from Michigan said that HIV and AIDS is disproportionately impacting the, uh, the black community or whatever, and he felt that it was a conspiracy to attack the black community, and it was constantly something that was presented as one of the reasons why the black community can never fully self-actualize. And my response to him was that, yes, it is a major health concern for the black community. And one of the reasons why it's a major health concern for the black community is because we're not moving past this uh, period of mistreatment and really taking advantage of uh, information related to health outcomes. You know, black people tend to be the last people to go to the hospital because of our distress. And because of it, we tend to be uh, diagnosed later and as a result, of course, you know, the medications don't work as well for us because they have to do, they have to work much harder to improve our health outcomes than if we were diagnosed earlier. So if we invested more in, you know, health fairs and really taking the time out to uh, get tested for HIV and get tested for things like diabetes and improve the way that we ate and stop thinking of so many things as conspiracies, it will really improve the community health outcomes overall. And, and do you find that they're satisfied with this answer? No. <laughs> Most people that want to believe in conspiracies are going to continue to want to believe in conspiracies. And it's not my or anybody else's job or I don't think that it's 
even within our power to be able to change those persons unless they want to change. You know, one of the things that I learned when I was getting my degree in psychology is that there's this theory of reason action that people are going to believe what they want to believe unless they receive a very compelling reason to change their mind. And until someday something happens in his life that convinces him that he needs to change this conspiracy way of thinking, he's going to continue to be resolved in uh, believing that there's a conspiracy against him and the rest of the black community. But hopefully um, most other black people that want to take responsibility and want to take control of their lives and want to acknowledge that HIV is a serious health threat to um, people that aren't willing to engage in HIV prevention messages or get tested for HIV, hopefully they'll get tested, get um, their results and make some better, more positive health decisions for themselves. Now I wanted to ask a little bit about your love life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the non-existent love life? <laughs> I guess I want to know, um, do you have a partner currently? I do not. And how has dating changed since you were diagnosed? I've become less tolerant after I was diagnosed with HIV. You know, before I have always been and I will continue to be a very hopeless romantic. I, I definitely see more investment in really developing a relationship with someone than I do in uh, just taking part in a one-night sexual encounter. I'm always going to be the relationship-oriented person or the person that believes in unrequited love. I'm not necessarily interested in trying to convince people of my self-worth after uh, being diagnosed. I have very low tolerance for people that think less of me because of my HIV status. And I also... I, I really don't tolerate a lot of the negativity or, you know, the hoops that people want to put you through in order to date them. So I really just reserve myself for uh, people that are willing to take the interest in getting to know me and accepting the full me. And if they are willing to take an interest and, and spend the time and really exploring a relationship with me, then I'm more than will, willing to meet them and go the distance with them. But uh, for people that are afraid of me because I have HIV or want to treat me as this vector of disease, I just, I'd, I'd rather not be bothered. And do you find that there's a lot of people in that group or there's a lot more welcoming and understanding and tolerant people? Unfortunately, though, many people think the gay community is this very welcoming community to people with HIV. I find that the gay community is actually the exact opposite. There are a lot of gay men that because of a lot of HIV prevention messages, fear people with HIV. They think that the best uh, HIV prevention method is to avoid people with HIV. So because I so readily disclose and um, I'm not really ashamed of my HIV status, I find that more and more gay men kind of uh, repel me and don't want to necessarily invest in trying to uh, start a relationship with me, which is okay because it's based in fear. And unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of them end up positive themselves because instead of protecting themselves, regardless of someone's HIV diagnosis, they just avoid people that disclose having HIV. I heard a term the other day, a mythologically negative people. Exactly. The people that either don't know their status or tell people that they're HIV negative, you know, and the reality is that some people don't tell the truth and other people just don't know. So, and, you know, it's not a reliable HIV prevention strategy just to avoid people with HIV as your method of avoiding becoming HIV positive. So, mm -hmm. how, how soon after you meet somebody do you disclose that you have HIV? Unfortunately, because of my job, most people know <laughs> before I meet them, but um, usually I disclose my HIV status pretty 
soon, um, usually within the first conversation or the first meeting. It's something that I, I talk very openly and candidly about. And I, I tend to be very cathartic with things that I think might turn people away. And I don't want to really invest a lot of myself or my time if it's going to end up ending anyway. So I usually bring it out very early on. So what would you tell somebody who is just diagnosed with HIV? What would you say are the first couple of steps they should definitely do to be able to survive the rough beginning, I I guess? I would definitely tell them that they should spend all of their time teaching themselves how to love themselves first. Self-love is probably the best health improvement outcome that I've learned for myself. Don't waste your time trying to convince people to um, love you in spite of your HIV, love yourself, and people will uh, see that you love yourself and be attracted to you as a result of that. And surround yourself with people that have your best interest at heart. You know, if people think negatively about you being HIV positive or don't understand who you are, what you're going through, there are definitely people out there that do love you regardless and people that are willing to help you through whatever you're going through at the moment. So spend your time investing in those people and don't waste your time with those people that are negative. Well, that's great advice. I guess with that, we have to bring this interview to a close. Callie, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Same here. Thank you. The opinions expressed by hosts or interviewees in this podcast do not constitute professional advice, should not be considered substitutes for professional services, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Body Health Resources Corporation or its sponsors. Please see the full disclaimer online at thebody.com. If you have comments or questions, please contact us. Thanks for listening to This Positive Life. For more podcasts and other first-person stories, please visit us online at thebody.com. If you'd like to share your story, please email us at podcast at thebody.com.